0: Well, good evening, welcome, glad you guys are here, for this is actually the last in our series of walking with Jesus. So you have made it through, I know it probably has felt like more than this, but you basically made it through three and a half years of Jesus' ministry in the last few weeks. Let me say a prayer for us, and we're gonna jump in tonight. This is some really good, really good uh, lessons. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you that we can come together and reason together. I pray that your word will enter our minds, our hearts, and be expressed in our hands uh, to those around us. Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that we have to study your word in Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, actually I'm gonna stop this and restart it. Thank you. Okay, so there's our questions, text questions during class. I always say this all the time, I know it's on the handouts, but uh, it's just a, a good thing to repeat. And then one thing I want to do before we jump into our lesson, what are we doing next? Okay, this is a complicated announcement, but it's also on your handout. After this lesson, we won't have any Wednesday night programming, so we won't have this class until July 12, 1926, and August 1st. In other words, during the summer, we do a four-week deal. It's kids, adults, everything, and we'll be back in here, and we'll be doing a four-week series in July and August 1st. Between now and then, we have vacation Bible school, we have some conferences here, et cetera. So the church is busy, but we don't have this programming. So one of the ways, I mean, we really built a good rapport. I mean, I I love it that so many of you wanna study the Bible together. Our folks on live stream, our friends in Edmond that are studying with us and texting questions in live. So many of you are now gonna watch this at a future time. We see a lot of people watching our lessons online and that's great because that's just more people studying the Bible and I applaud you for your passion to know God's Word. But in the meantime, to kind of keep up a two-way thing, I'm going to be guest blogging this summer on this website. It's sowespeak.com. So We Speak comes from a, a biblical passage. By the way, you get extra credit if you email me and tell me which Bible verse that comes from. Because I don't know, I just I want you to tell me. No, I'm just kidding. The SoWeSpeak.com, www.SoWeSpeak.com. It is a site that's dedicated to talking about Christian worldview issues issues in an intellectually and morally honest way. I think you'll find the level of dialogue there is high, and uh, I think you'll find it really interesting. So I'm going to do some guest blogging there, and I'd like to write some short. Articles. I mean, really short articles that answer some of the questions we couldn't get to. You guys have asked great questions and we can't answer all of them. So that's a great forum to answer some of those questions. And then other kinds of things have come up that are maybe a little more controversial and the Bible's a little more hard hitting. Like to answer those there as well. So if you're interested in that, you can just go to that website and you'll see the posts. But if you'd like to know when they come out, do one of two things. If you follow me on Twitter, at Terry Fakes, at Terry Fakes on Twitter. I'll tweet and we'll post it out when we do it. Or if you don't do Twitter, if you want to send an email to Ashley Fuhrer, it's A-F-U-H-R at crossings.church, she'll put your email on a list that we have. We have a list of six, 700 people that like to be kept up to date when we're doing things like this. If you'd like to do that, shoot her an email, she'll add you to the list. So just wanted to make it possible for us to continue to study dialogue, you know, interact with questions, uh, I think that's really important. So that's something that'll be going on during the summer, maybe beyond, but certainly for the summer while we take off a little bit from classes. So let's do a review. Where and when are we? Well, we are about 30 AD. Using the chronology that I've been using here is Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old, the Gospel of Luke tells us, I'm gonna date that at around 26, maybe 27 AD. And so we're now about 30 AD. We are just a couple of months away from the cross. So where have we been? Jesus has been, um, obviously traveling a lot, that's the essence of this, series, but the last time he had made the trip from Galilee down to, uh, excuse me, this is not helping me out tonight, there we go, made the trip down to Jerusalem, and remember we looked at Luke chapter 9 where it said Jesus set his mind on Jerusalem, he knew he was headed to the cross. And when he got there in our last lesson, this is, we know it was September or October, of probably 29 AD because it was the Feast of Booths. Do you remember that, the Feast of Tabernacles where the Jews would live in those temporary dwellings? And he did a couple of things during that feast. One, you had the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember at the end of that he says, go your way and sin no more, neither do I condemn you. And so you have that in John chapter eight, that happened at that time. Then in John chapter nine, If you remember, he heals the blind man, sends him all the way down the hill to the pool of Siloam and he sees and he comes back and it happened to have been a Sabbath and the Pharisees were really upset. I mean, John chapter 9 is just a brilliant story of a man who was blind but who could see the truth of Jesus and Pharisees who thought they could see all the truth ended up becoming blind. you remember that? That's happening in Jerusalem about September, October, let's call it 29 AD. Well, at the end of that time, something happens that causes Jesus. It's not quite time for the cross. That's going to happen in about March or April of the next year of 30 AD. We're now in 30 AD and he's going to do a couple of things, but Passover is going to be March or April. And so we're really a short time away from the cross. Well, in the meantime, while he's in Jerusalem, this happens. This is out of John chapter 10. The Jews picked up Stones to stone him. I'm coming into the middle of a story here, but I want to tell you what's happening in Jerusalem. He keeps teaching and doing things, and they finally decide, We're going to kill you. You know, we think you're blaspheming. We think you're, you know, we're going to kill you. So they pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus said to them, I have done a lot of miracles from the Father. Which one of these miracles are you stoning me for? It's like, well, God, it doesn't sound good when you say it like that. And so they said, we are not stoning you for any of these miracles, replied the Jewish leaders, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Can I give you just a, a short rabbit trail? Uh, it's really popular today amongst what I'd consider really liberal Christians, and I'm just planning a label there, but hopefully you kind of know what I mean by that. People who are skeptical about the truth of the scriptures. People, there are people in our world that would like Jesus not to be God. They would like Jesus just to be a really good humanistic kind of teacher. And so one of the common objections is, you know what? Christians made Jesus into God. You know, Bart Ehrman wrote a book basically about this saying, you know, Christians invented Jesus being God. Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, they decided they'd kill him because they thought that he did. And so my point there is this little side note is, that is a completely uh, argument that has no substance. Even though he didn't say, hey, by the way, I'm God. They are stoning him because they said, you are claiming to be God. And so they clearly understood that. Jesus is clearly in Jewish ways to Jewish people saying, I am the son of God. So Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Don't believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, at least believe these miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Well, that doesn't help. So again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist, all those three and a half years ago, had been baptizing in the early days and he stayed there. And many people came to him. They said, you know, though John the Baptist never performed a miracle, everything he said about this man, this Jesus, was true. And in that place, many people believed in Jesus. So he's now left Jerusalem temporarily, not for very long, he'll go back for Passover and to the cross. So I want to show you where he is. Here's our map. He's basically, uh, and we're going to go to several, three places here, but he's basically over here in a place called Perea. He goes back across the Jordan River. And so in this time period, he's going to now make his way back to Jerusalem, but he left because the time wasn't right. Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified, and for the full plan of God to come together, that was going to happen on the Passover. And so he he leaves Jerusalem for a little bit and continues his ministry. So the first place I'd like to go is this place uh, called Bethany. So he goes really close to Jerusalem. Bethany is a kind of think of it as a, it's just one of those little bedroom communities where everybody in Bethany worked in Jerusalem. They just commuted you know so they drive home at night put the car in the garage and played soccer at the Bethany soccer fields but so it's basically a little suburb of Jerusalem so it's very close even in those days and he goes to Bethany and he goes there for a reason while he's over here in Perea modern day Jordan by the way that area on the right is is modern day Jordan and so while he's over in Jordan and he's teaching and many people are coming to him he gets some news we're going to read about this in John chapter 11 that a really good friend of his named Lazarus died. And so they send word to him saying, your friend Lazarus is very, very sick. And so this news comes to Jesus and his disciples, and here's what he said. Let's go into our story in uh, John 11. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, uh, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, this is for God's glory, so that his son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now, think about what has just happened. They came here because last time they were there, the Jews tried to stone him twice. And so they said, Rabbi... Have you already forgotten that it wasn't that long ago that the Jews tried to stone you and yet you want to go back there? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Now, fallen asleep is a euphemism. It can mean died. Like we would say someone passed away. If you don't speak English, you go, passed away where? you know. But it's a euphemism. We mean they died. Well, that's what this is. But they go, well, he can't know that he died. Maybe he really means he went to sleep. And so his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, guys, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so you may believe. But let's go to him. This is one of my favorite verses, by the way. Then Thomas, called Didymus, which means twin. And Thomas is doubting Thomas. Right? He's the one that later is going to say, I'm not going to believe unless I touch the wounds. Said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we can die with him. Now, I'm going to make two observations about Thomas. Number one, he's not an optimist. Yeah, He's like, let's go with him, and we'll just all die together. Fine, you know? But I don't think he's really it's really fair to call him Doubting Thomas in one sense. I mean, he, he is. He doubts until he sees the wounds after the resurrection. But right now, he's the only one of these guys that says, you know what? I think he's going to die. You all think he's going to die. And I think if we stand next to him, we'll probably die. But you know what? I'm going with him anyway. So he may be a pessimist, but he's going, isn't he? And so I think doubting Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap because he's willing to go and die with Jesus. So you tend to think of doubting Thomas as being weak in faith and Peter as being strong in faith. At the end of the day, they both die martyrs' deaths for preaching at the end of their lives. So they obviously both are men of great faith. But at this moment, Peter's the one that's going to deny Jesus three times. Thomas is the one that says, hey, I think we're all going to die, but I guess I'll go with him. And let's just all go die together, guys. And so Doubting Thomas says, let's go with him. And so they do. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit of the story and you, you probably know some of this story. So they go with Jesus and he goes there and when he gets there, Lazarus is dead, sure enough. And so Martha and then Mary both come to him and they both say the same thing. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Well, that's probably true in the sense that Jesus clearly has the power to heal people. He would have died. And Jesus says, now, you, you realize that your brother will live again. And so Mary says, I know that he will he will be raised in the resurrection and I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ of God. And Jesus says, that's true, but your brother will actually be raised before that. And so he, he begins to go to the tomb and something really interesting happens here. And uh, this is a question I think that's just worth asking. So Jesus, this is the, the place where many of you probably memorized this verse before—the shortest verse in the Bible—Jesus wept—is in this story. So what happens is he sees all these people crying and mourning over Lazarus. They're just—they're crushed because someone they loved has died. And he—it says that he became very troubled and strongly agitated, and he began to weep. And then he went to the uh, tomb, and it says again. He was deeply moved and greatly troubled at this. So let me pause for a second and ask this question because this is really a key idea about the gospel. Why is Jesus crying and why is he greatly troubled if he knows he can raise Lazarus from the dead? I mean have you ever thought about that? Now, this is a class in building your faith, not destroying your faith. I do want to reassure you of that. But seriously, why is Jesus crying? Why is he upset if he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? I believe he does know that he he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead because right after that he says, roll the stone away. And they go, this won't be pretty. And he goes, just roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And sure enough, he comes out. He's alive. So he knows this is going to happen. Why is he weeping? Why is he troubled? This Greek word is really interesting. It's kind of... Uh, I mean, it's a very strong word. It's used a few other times in the New Testament where it says uh, Jesus strongly rebuked somebody. I mean, it's it's got anger in it, but it's also got just emotional turmoil. In this case, it comes out as weeping and sadness. So you get this idea that Jesus is sad and angry at the same time. So he's not sad just because Lazarus is dead because Lazarus is going to be alive in a few minutes. Here's what he's really sad about, and this is the key to understanding the gospel. First of all, I'm just going to make this observation. This is Terry's view of the scripture. It's not in the scripture, but have you ever wondered, Lazarus comes out of there and everybody goes, Lazarus, you're alive. Oh my goodness, we've seen a miracle. Hug, hug, hug. I don't think Lazarus was very happy. I mean, stop and think about it. Lazarus takes it off and he goes, great. I just got sick and died, and now I have to do it again? (laughs) Seriously, he's going to die again. Okay, so I made that part up. But the point is, he's going to die again. So Jesus, in doing this, isn't really, I mean, he's going to make everybody happy for the moment. The reason he's so distressed is he is angry at death. He is angry at the pain and the sorrow and the sadness and the fear of death because if you think about it, that's not the way this world was made. And this is key to the gospel. In the Garden of Eden, it was not planned that Adam and Eve would die. They were not created, corruptible. With the fall, you get the corruption of not only humanity, you get the corruption of the entire creation. And so you get sin, with sin comes death. In fact, if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, book in your New Testament, Paul's talking a lot about the idea of a resurrection. And he says this, that in the time when Jesus returns, All the enemies will be defeated, but the last enemy to be defeated is death. And sure enough, in the book of Revelation, which speaks of Jesus' second coming, he takes death and hell and destroys them. Death itself ceases to exist. He has undone the curse. In the garden with sin, death enters the world. And from that time on, Every human being goes through the door to death. And the problem with that is, as Jesus stands there on on that side of the cross, before the cross, there is no hope. In other words, what is there after death? Because 1 Corinthians 15 says, what is the sting of death? The sting of death is sin, and therein lies the problem. We live in sin, which puts us in rebellion against God We're subject to the wrath of God, and we have death to look forward to. We have no hope without Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is angry about. Satan, the fall of humanity, Satan's temptation, Satan's bondage of these people to sin, and death is what they have to look forward to. And they have no hope of ever being reconciled to God. That's the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's all about death. It's all about eternal life. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that he will make your teeth whiter, make your children smarter, get you more scholarship money. I mean, okay, those things might happen. But that's not the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is we were doomed because the sting of death is sin. We have no hope. That's why Jesus dies on the cross, is raised, and death is defeated. Now, our bodies will die, but we will live on forever. That's the gospel. That's why Jesus is upset. It's not about being able to raise this body of Lazarus and give him this mortal life back. It's about the inevitable door of death that every one of us will go through. Okay, This is getting preachy, so I'm going to stop. That is a key, key idea. That's what Jesus is upset about. That's what the cross is for, is so that we can live forever. That these bodies and this bondage to sin is not our doom. That's the good news of the gospel. Okay? All right. So that's why he's upset. So... He calls Lazarus out. Everybody goes, wow, that's awesome, except Lazarus, who says, great, I've got to get sick and die again, and by the way, I'll bet they've canceled my health insurance. So, I mean, seriously, can you imagine the paperwork involved with this? Hi, I'd like to, uh, you know, reinstate my health insurance. I'm sorry, sir. Our records show that you are dead. Uh, Well, what about that Social Security check? No, sir, that would be fraud. You are dead. I mean, think of Lazarus has got problems here, all right? Well, anyway, afterwards, therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. When you see somebody able to bring someone back from the dead, you go, okay, that's really hard to fake. I mean, a lot of people have said, well, you know, maybe Lazarus wasn't really dead. Trust me, these people lived a little closer to the earth than you and I. They know a dead body when they see a dead body. And he's been in the tomb for four days, right? And they asked him and he said, were you dead? He goes, I was dead. So, they put their faith in him. But some went to the Pharisees. They're always tattletales. Some of these people went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is insightful. This is, the, this is what's happening that leads to the cross in maybe a month or so after this. In other words, you've seen the tension between the Jewish authorities and Jesus Not because he did anything wrong, but he's really upsetting the apple cart. Now you find out, and this is so human. This could be 21st century America. Listen to their reasoning. "'What are we accomplishing?' they asked. "'Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. "'If we let him go on like this, "'everyone will believe in him, "'and then the Romans will come "'and take away both our place and our nation.'" Now that's political purely political, which, like I say, these are people, I know they lived 2,000 years ago, but they literally could be in Washington, D.C. today. So what are they really worried about? First of all, you remember Jesus doing those miracles with 5,000 men and feeding the 5,000? So there are, what, eight, 10,000 people there, but 5,000 men. There were revolts started with far fewer than 5,000 men, armed men. And so they're like, this dude could start a revolt against the Romans. He is so wildly popular, nothing we can do keeps him from being popular. He can feed the people bread miraculously, he can heal people, and you know, if this guy wanted to, he could probably arm 20, 30,000 men. That's an army in those days. Well, what they're saying is, great, this guy goes off half-cocked, and he decides tomorrow he's gonna be king because we've heard about the people wanting to make him king. The Romans are gonna go, whoa, not on our watch or not. And then the Roman armies will come in and they will destroy this place and we will be out of a job. And so they're worried about the politics of this. They're worried purely about the Romans getting worried about this guy and coming in and putting him down. Now, Jesus doesn't start an insurrection, does he? That's not what he's here for. Pilate says, they say, you're a king. He said, I am, but I'm not a king here like you think of a king. Later in 66 AD, remember we're in 30 AD, 66 AD, a bunch of guys named Zealots, remember Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' disciples? Well, there's a whole little political party of these little terrorists. They do start an insurrection and they actually do kick the Romans out for a couple of years. And then sure enough, Romans show up, they destroy everything. Well, that's what they're worried about. They're afraid that Jesus, if he wanted to, could start something. So their problem with Jesus is, he could upset the political situation. Then one of them, a man named Caiaphas who was high priest that year. Actually, Caiaphas was high priest. Is think of that like being sort of president. He was high priest from 18 AD to 36 AD. And I'm gonna say we're about 30. So we're, he's been high priest for quite a while. So he's kind of the ruler of the Jews. And so Caiaphas said, you know nothing at all. Very pleasant guy. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest, he had prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. You know how he prophesied that? He intends to kill him. So he said, he prophesied Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now that is so interesting. This is so god this is so God doing just really cool things. So think about it. They go, this Jesus could be a problem, so I'm the high priest. I'll prophecy. I think he's going to need to... See, they don't want to have it known that they killed him because he's popular. But they don't want him to be so popular, the Romans will come in and upset the apple cart. So they make... He make this is a really good political move. Caiaphas says, he's going to be a martyr. I got a word from God. He's going to die. But it's going to be in a noble cause. He's going to die for all of us, friends. And in fact, for all the Jews around the world. Now, go kill him. And that's what it says. And from that time on, they plotted to kill him. But you see how he's orchestrating this? It's like, oh no, we didn't kill him. Somebody assassinated him. I told you, I love the guy. He died for all of us. You know, this is politics, then as now. So they decide that they're gonna kill Jesus From that time on. But it's really an interesting twist because God says, you know, you're a false prophet, Caiaphas. You didn't get that word from me. But I tell you what, Caiaphas, I'll make that come exactly true. This is going to be one man who dies for this nation. And in fact, he is going to die for all the scattered children of God. Isn't it funny how Caiaphas says that from purely selfish motives and God says, hey, I think I'll make that come true and I'll make it come true in a way that you have no idea. And so Jesus Christ does indeed die for all the sins of humanity. So after this, uh, Jesus obviously, uh, at this point, they're looking for him. They're trying to kill him. So he does not go to Jerusalem yet. It's not that time. In fact, he goes back to Perea. He goes back to doing what he was doing. Remember, he just went to Bethany because Lazarus was sick, raised him from the dead. It's not my time. He goes back to Perea. And here is where an interesting little uh, deal happens. But I wanna show you about this area of Jordan. Today, this is called Jordan. This is the Jordan River, a little piece of it. And by the way, this is the border fence. There's the border road. This is Jordan over here. This is Israel on this side. This is just a good little pick. But that's what the border looks like. The border with Jordan isn't that well defended. I mean, it's basically just got a fence. Now the border with Syria, whole different story. But the border with Jordan is not that bad. And I wanna show you just this Jordan River Valley. So this is the River Jordan. There are mountains on this side, there are mountains over here, and it's, it's a rift, meaning it's a bowl. And so this is Israel over here. You can see the border fence. And this is Jordan on this side. And so Jesus has actually gone across the Jordan. And I just want to make this one observation about this. He goes across the Jordan where this whole thing kind of started. Do you remember at the very beginning of his ministry, where does Jesus go? He goes to see John the Baptist, he's baptized in the Jordan, and he goes out into the wilderness. And so what did this say? He went back to the place where John was baptizing in the early days, some three years earlier. So Jesus' ministry in a sense has come full circle and there's a point to that. But while he's there, something else happens. I I wanna just give you some of his teaching in the places where it happens. But let me pause and answer some questions uh, if we have any about Lazarus because something else happens here in this place with this young ruler and I just want you to put it into a context. Questions though?
1: Well, one little housekeeping item that seems to have a lot of people worried, we're not switching to Thursday nights. The dates on the slide were for Thursday, apparently.
0: The dates on the (laughs) slides were Thursdays?
1: That's what they're telling me. So July 11th, 18th, 25th, and August 1st. Yeah, that's it. Wednesdays. We're we're not switching to Thursday.
0: You cannot get good help. Obviously, (laughs) whoever made my slides up goofed it up. Oh, that was me. Okay, never mind. Yeah. You cannot get good help. Thank you. It will be the Wednesdays in July. Thank you for that correction. Okay. Now, you're so, not going to believe anything else I say now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you at all. The guy can't get the dates right. I don't think he can understand the Bible very well either.
1: So Jesus goes back to the place where he started his ministry, where John was baptizing, Do we think that at this point in time, he understood that he was going to be crucified? And if he did or he didn't, when do you think that that awareness came to him?
0: That's a good question. The question is, does Jesus at this point in time see that he's gonna be crucified? That's an easy question to answer. Yes, before he left Galilee, and I just didn't cover this, but it's it's in your gospels, he tells his disciples, The son of man, how he referred to himself, which is also really cool. Got an Old Testament connection, another story, another day. But he says, the son of man is going to be handed over and crucified. And the disciples are like, you know what he's talking about? I have no idea what he's talking about. So he has told them, this is what's going to happen. He did it brilliantly so that later they go, you know what? He he said this was gonna happen. Wait a minute, maybe this isn't an accident. Maybe this is the plan of God. So he definitely knows now. The question is, when does Jesus know that he is going to be crucified? For example, when he's, when he's in first grade, does he know? You know? When he's in fifth grade, does he know? No one can really answer that question you know, in terms of, maybe, because the scripture doesn't answer that question. It doesn't say, okay, on this day, Jesus got the briefing you know, from God and says, okay, here's exactly how it's going to happen. So he does seem to know what's happening. And I'll tell you why I think he knows what's going to happen. He knows why this is going to happen. It's actually important that he's crucified in the Passover. Not because he couldn't have covered our sins on any other day, but there's an Exodus motif happening here. You remember we talked about that? What God did with the Israelites, and I'm gonna remind you really quickly. Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, God sends a deliverer, he confronts the most powerful man and country in the world, and by miraculous means God judges them and says your gods are false. And so he brings the people out, they go through the parted Red Sea, they go through a desert experience, they enter the promised land, they are slaves no more. That's the Exodus motif in a, in a tiny little nutshell. That's what Jesus is doing. He comes in from the desert, he crosses the Jordan River, comes into the promised land, begins talking to people who are slaves to sin, and he's here to set them free. The Passover is is the remembrance of the Exodus. And so he understands why this is happening. He understands what he's doing here is playing out on a big scale what has already been forecast on a small scale. So it's probably impossible to know when does he know he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. I'll just leave it at that. And say there's a lot of really interesting speculation on that, but it's all speculation. Good question.
1: This question plays a little bit into what you were just talking about. If Jesus and the cross were necessary for salvation and part of God's plan from the beginning, why did so much time pass before his arrival on earth?
0: Why does there so much... And this is a lesson in and of itself. So what I'm going to give you, if it's not satisfactory, it's not because this, the answer's not, it's because time doesn't permit. Is that fair? But here's the short version of that. So you have what's called in the Scripture. It runs all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation, there is a thread that runs through all of this story. It is God's plan of redemption. Remember, redemption means to buy something back, to reclaim something. What happens? In the garden, the fall of humanity, sin enters the world, death enters the world. We have become captive to sin. We have become alienated from God. Okay, God begins the plan to bring, at that point, he could have just said, well, that was a failure. You guys are disappointments. You're toast. We'll just scrap this thing and start over. But he doesn't. He says, I love you, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, loved those sinful people, you and me, even when we were not lovable, that he sent his one and only son. Okay, that's, that's shorthand of what God's doing. And he does it through years and years and years and years. The way I teach it, and I think it's a, a fairly, uh, I think it's a good way to understand it. It's not perfect. But God is raising humanity up over time. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament is gonna say, the law of Moses, the 613 laws, that was a school teacher to bring you to Christ. In other words, humanity had to go through this to get to the point, in other words, this is God's plan. Why does it take so long? That's how long it took us to be prepared and the world to be prepared for Christ to come. The exodus had to happen. The exile of the Jews had to happen. The sinfulness of the world had to become manifest. In other words, all these things had to happen. So I think God's timing is is right, and I believe it was necessary, and we made it necessary. Okay?
1: So the Old Testament is necessary.
0: (laughs) The Old Testament is necessary. Yes, it most certainly is necessary. In fact, one of the first blog posts, because I get asked this question a lot, this has nothing to do with a popular preacher in America who recently came out and said that Jesus doesn't need to be propped up by the Old Testament. and I mean, that's what the questioner is referring to. But bigger picture, big picture. I get asked a lot about, are Christians supposed to be following the rules in the Old Testament? And then secondly, if we're not supposed to be following those rules, why are we reading the Old Testament? So I'll just let you wait on a blog post from that because I really wanna talk about that. There's really good reasons for the answers to that. So the Old Testament matters. That's my short answer right now. Well, let's talk about the rich young ruler for a minute. So now we're over in Jordan. So this, I, I want you to get the places with this in the times. This is kind of a side thing that's happening. This is not like part of the big plan. This is just Jesus interacting with people. So you know this story, but I just want to point out two interesting things about it. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, and buttering him up, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, this problem of, everybody understands the big problem is death. And the big problem is dying and not being okay with God. What I want is eternal life with God. He says, what do I need to do to get there? And Jesus goes, wouldn't you like to know? That's what all of humanity wants to know. He says, well, first of all, don't call me good. No one's good except God alone. But you know the commandments. In other words, you're living under the time of the law of Moses. And he he quotes a few of the 10 commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. He's not saying that's all you have to do. He's saying, keep the law of Moses. And he said, I've done all these since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you just lack one thing. You just need to liquidate your assets sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come on, follow me. Well, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, camels don't go through eyes of needles. So those who heard it said, Who can be saved? I mean, I guess it's not even possible to be saved. And Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. I just wanna make, you've probably heard a million sermons about this story. So I don't wanna exegete the whole thing, but I wanna make two interesting observations about this. Well first, and it kind of ties to this whole gospel theme that runs through this. The reason in verse 26, they said, well, who can be saved? Think about that. If the rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? What's their underlying assumption? Their underlying assumption is actually the same as, as the 21st century, and that is, if this guy's living the good life, if he's rich, if he's handsome, I mean, imagine Brad Pitt. If it guy's Brad Pitt standing here, and he's a godly guy, goes to church all the time, says he follows the rules, and he's rich, and he's living the good life, man, if that dude can't get into heaven, who can get into heaven? What's the assumption? The assumption is, this guy is the perfect Christian. I realize that's an anachronism, he's a Jew, but you know, this guy's the perfect Christian. And we get that idea sometimes too. They thought because his life was going well, he must be okay with God. And you just got through telling me, it's almost impossible for this guy to get into heaven. Oh no. And Jesus says, your problem is not with this guy. Your problem is with your assumption assuming that just because this guy's got it all together, he must be okay with God. And you know what? The same thing happens to us if we aren't careful. We can make that same assumption of, let me ask you this question, and I just want you to think of the first thing that comes to mind. What is a successful Christian? What is a successful Christian? Okay, my personal statistics say about 47% of you thought of Billy Graham, first thing. Those of you who were raised Catholic thought of Mother Teresa first thing. And no one in this room thought of an unknown person in sub-Saharan Africa who suffers and dies and lives their life a faithful Christian. That doesn't sound like success to us. So all I want to say to you is God's economy is very, very different. This isn't particularly about riches. It's about where we put our trust. God's idea of what's a successful Christian who's gonna get into the kingdom of God is not our culture's idea of success. And I think we can get tempted to slip into that if we aren't careful, just like they did. The second thing I wanna point out is in 27, they said, who can be saved? And Jesus said, this is impossible with men, but possible with God. And that's part of the gospel story. If you think about the good news being this, we are in sin, we have death to look forward to, We on our own have no hope of reconciling ourselves to God. That's the good news. It starts with bad news. But Jesus died with our sins, raised from the dead, so that all who trust in him can live forever. That's the gospel in a nutshell, right? And so that is impossible for us. And I want you to remember, salvation is impossible for us. We cannot overcome sin on our own. We cannot turn to God. Whether you're a Calvinist, or you're an Arminian, or you're a Wesleyan, nobody thinks you have the power on your own to go turn to God. Everybody believes in this idea of depravity. Depravity not meaning you're a bad person, depravity meaning you are helpless to, to get rid yourself of sin by yourself. It is not possible. Only with God is this possible. In other words, if God had not reached down, John three sixteen, if God had not given his son, we had no hope whatsoever. This story really brings that, the truth to that. The gospel itself is the anger at death and sin, and Jesus overcame it. And the thing is, Jesus overcame it. Quit trying to earn your salvation. Quit trying to measure up and rely on Jesus. Follow him obey him, but you do not have to, nor can you earn your salvation. You can never be good enough. You can be obedient and behave, act, forgive, love, be compassionate like Jesus calls us to be, and your salvation is assured in him, not in our behavior. That's kind of what I want to observe out of this story. It's not something you'll hear many sermons about, but it's a really interesting point. Let's go to the third place. So after this he returns back and he goes to Jericho. Now this is ironic because all the way back 1400 years before Jesus at the end of the Exodus, what happens? Israelites come in the desert in that exact spot where Jesus is, they look across the Jordan River and there's this town of Jericho. In those days Jericho was a fortified city, powerful city. The Jordan River was flood stage, couldn't get across. They didn't bring their bass boats with them you know, from Egypt. And so they're looking and it looks really tough. And remember what happens, God stops the river and they walk across and then they defeat Jericho. Great story for another time. What's Jesus doing? He's reenacting the end of the Exodus. He goes across the Jordan River and he goes into the town of Jericho. This is where our story is going to end. But from Jericho, he goes to Jerusalem, to the Passover, to the cross. So he's come full circle with the Exodus. But something interesting happens in Jericho as he's on his way, and, and that's kind of what happens to Jesus he's on his way. First, I want to show you a little about Jericho. Jericho is a cool city. It's in the West Bank now, in modern times, in what's called occupied territory, a territory that Israel took in the sixty-seven war. Uh, so this is uh, it's under the control of uh, Fatah the Palestinian Authority. But it's a beautiful little place. I mean, this is some of the agricultural things there. But this city, Jericho, is one of the oldest known inhabited cities in the world. You can trace inhabitants to, to Jericho as far back, maybe further, but at least as far back as 9000 B.C. So you're back into the Neolithic era. You're, you're way back in time at 9,000 BC. But this site appears to have been occupied. Part of it is because it's by the Jordan River. It's, you can grow things there. It's defensible. But this is a very ancient city. And it is the oldest city, by the way, to have been found that had a fortified wall. I mean, way, way back, cities didn't have fortified walls. Then they realized, hey, this would be a whole lot easier if the enemy couldn't just walk in you know, and so they built walls. The oldest known fortified city is this city. So think about circa 1400 BC in the Exodus, the Israelites coming in and they're gonna see a wall that looks a lot like what I'm gonna show you. I mean bigger, this, these are the remains of it. But by the way, that is a mud brick house. That, and, and when Jesus was there, there were places looked exactly like that. They are basically made of mud, that's formed, baked in the sun, and then built up into a house, and then they would have mud covered uh, thatch roofs like that. That's in Jericho now, same exact same kind of house. Now, that one may have internet and they didn't, but you know, basically, same kind of place. This is interesting. This is some strata, and this is there's a wall in here of mud bricks. You can't see it. You know what that is? That's melted. Wall. So Jericho's been destroyed, and there's been a lot of attempts to date that destruction layer, that fire, from where the walls, where Jericho's been destroyed, and it's burned, burned hot enough to melt the mud bricks there that they've excavated. And so basically, the Exodus is thought to have happened, depending on your dating, about 1400 or about 1200. That's been dated to 1573 B.C. Now in geological terms, so archaeologists will say, well, that can't be the Israelites. The Bible, you know, it can't be the Bible, what the Bible's talking about. I'm just going to tell you, you get within a couple hundred years, you know, that close, it starts to make me think maybe the Bible knows what it's talking about. But that is melted mud brick from a destruction layer. Those uh, are basically a grain storage jars found. These go back probably further than the time of Jesus, but certainly in that era. Here is a mud brick wall sitting on a stone foundation. This is what that wall would have looked like and it is part of a bigger wall. I'm going to show you the bigger wall now. You see all the mud bricks? Some stone, that's really old. I mean, you're used to seeing stone walls and you'll see some there too. That's from later times. And when I say later times, I'm talking about even before the time of Jesus. Mud brick goes back time of Abraham, 2000 BC and earlier. This is a really ancient, ancient city had at least 20 different civilizations there. Here you can really see the mud brick walls. As you look at this picture, you can just see them compressed over the thousands of years, but those are mud brick walls. This is a stone tower, Neolithic time. Think many thousands of years before the time of Christ. So this Jericho has been around a long time. I mean, it's an ancient civilization and there is a civilization there. And this is a stone wall. So it'd be a little bit later in time. So Jesus comes walking through this city and the significance of it is we're at the end of the Exodus and Jesus is basically saying, we're about to the end of the story and you're about to enter the promised land. He's going to go to the cross so that you and I can go to the promised land. You see how the gospel is built on this this exodus? It's not a story, this exodus event, but we call it the exodus story, the exodus motif. And when he gets there, one other thing happens that I think is kind of interesting. It's a good note to end on. So Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through, so he doesn't have any real intention of sticking around. He's like, I got a date in Jerusalem. Not looking forward to it, but I've got a thing to do there. And there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, wee little Zacchaeus, immortalized in song in every VBS of all time, he could not. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree, and since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, why don't you come down? I'm going to stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Excuse me. Tax collectors, I'll tell you the short version of the story because you probably heard it in those days. The way the Romans did this, they franchised their tax collecting. So what they did was they would say, look, who will bid on how much taxes you can give me from Judea, from Israel? And so you'd get these consortium of people who would bid it out. And there would be like other Roman businesses saying, well, I think I can give you $2 million a year. And the other guy says, I'll bid $2.2 million." And they go, okay, you win the contract. So you get the contract, so what do you do? you got to go get some feet on the ground, and you got to go collect the taxes from people. How much do you collect? As much as you can get. Because guess what? Whatever you make over the $2.2 million you committed to Rome, you keep. There's a reason tax collectors are wealthy, and it's not because they're compassionate and it's not because they follow the rules. But here's the sweet deal. You've got Roman soldiers to help you, as Rome wants the taxes. So they say, look, you having trouble with anybody? You can use our soldiers and we'll just go beat them up. Sweet deal. So what they did was, they would. it was easier to hire locals to go do this because they know how much money everybody makes. I mean, if you import people in from somewhere else, they're foreigners, what do they know? So they would go offer good salaries, and they'd say, what will you bid to get Oklahoma City. And what will you bid for this? And so some enterprising Jews said, I'll collect the taxes in Jericho. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you 100,000 a year. He goes, you got the contract, you deliver 100,000. Guess how much he got to keep above the 100,000? Anything he makes. So Zacchaeus is like the head of Arbon. I mean, this is kind of like one of those kind of marketing. Okay, this is a problem. I'm going to get emails, aren't I? I'm not saying our bond reps are tax collectors. I'm not saying that they're doing it wrong. I'm just saying it was one of those. I just want you to see that what's happening in the Bible is the same as today. It's an economic model. So, But the problem is the Jews said, you're a traitor. You're collecting money from Rome, and you're not only collecting money on behalf of Rome, who we don't think ought to be occupying us at all, you're extorting money. You're living in luxury while we're all out here living in poverty. You can imagine they don't get invited over to eat many people's houses. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's like way up in the food chain, and he's very wealthy. Remember Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples? He's wealthy too. He's a tax collector. Well, they're sinners. They're hated. They're worse. They're worse than the Romans because they're turncoat Jews. And so he goes to his house, and here's what happens. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, you assume Jesus is is talking to him. He said, look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. I want you to contrast this with the rich young ruler who has followed the law his whole life and what's he willing to give? Jesus said, well, go sell everything you have. Here is the sinner, Zacchaeus, who has not followed the law of Moses, is considered a traitor and a sinner. He hears Jesus and what does he say? I'll immediately give away half of what I have to the poor and he says, and if I've cheated anybody, oh you definitely have Zacchaeus, out of anything I will pay back four times that amount and listen to what Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. I just think this is a great way to end and for this reason, this is a great insight into how Jesus saw people in his day and how we should see people in our day. Two thoughts, Put yourself in the position of the one who is lost. I don't know if you think about yourself that way. Sometimes we think about ourselves as evil. We beat ourselves up, I'm not good enough, I keep failing, I keep sinning, I'm not where I need to be yet, I'm not living up to what Jesus calls me to be. Those are all true things to some extent, but we kind of think, well, I'm bad, I'm awful, and we beat ourselves up. Jesus does not look at you that way. Jesus looks at you as what you can be, When he washes the sin away and he thinks of you as lost and that you need to be found. And I think that's a powerful way for us to look at the people around us because it's really easy to divide the world into the good people and the bad people. Jesus divided the world into the lost people and the found people. And that's a really different way of looking at the world. It feels good to be that way, but it's a paradigm shift. If you would look at the world and say, are there evil people in the world? Of course there are. Is there evil in the world? Of course there is. But is it really productive to start making, okay, you're on the naughty list and you're on the naughty list. Hey, you're on the nice list. Can I tell you about the gospel? You know, you, you treat us well. You'd probably fit at our church. The point is, Jesus says, here's the paradigm I want you to use. Found people who have turned to Christ and everybody else is lost. Now go help them find their way back. That's a great way to think about what you and I are doing in the world. But here's the note I want to end on, is I want you, when you wake up in the morning, I want you to think about this. I was lost and now I'm found. And would you not be in a good mood every day when you realized, I used to be lost. I used to not know where I was going and now I've been found. That should cause us great joy because death is no longer the end of our story. We trust in Jesus Christ and his blood covers our sin. What we could not do alone, he did. And now my body will die, but I will live forever. And I have been reconciled to God. I was lost and he found me. And now I am his. Think about yourself that way. Now you don't need to keep score so much. I mean, you're free to forgive, you're free to love, you're free to take risks, you're free to get hurt occasionally because that's what you have in front of you. Jesus wept because humanity had nothing but death and destruction and doom in front of them. But now you and I have nothing but the death of this body which is is going to, to fade and die and then we have eternity in front of us. We have what the rich young ruler wanted. So think about yourself that way. Think about your world that way. So when you go to work tomorrow or you go to work out tomorrow, whatever you do, try to adopt the mindset of Jesus and see if it doesn't really change your interactions with people and see if it doesn't change how you feel about yourself. That's why why Christians should be optimistic people. Not because we think the world's gonna get better, but the point is I know where I'm going and my only job is to go out there and find lost people and say, you know, Let me tell you, I went this way and this is where life is. That's our job. And so we we take a lot of stress and we worry about a lot of stuff and we beat ourselves up a lot, but that's what we're called to do. So until July, whatever date we're actually meeting in July, that's what I want you to do. I really want you to think about this. To think about every day, get up and go, I was lost, but now I'm found. I am completely free today to see if I can help somebody else find the water of life. God bless you guys and thanks for being here for this series.